Welcome to another episode of Value Investors Edge Live. Today we're hosting Ted Young, CFO of Dorian LPG. Dorian has just reported their Q3 results for 2019. Stock is hitting fresh multi-year highs. We are recording this on the morning of November 1st, 2019. As a disclosure, I am long shares of Dorian LPG. Nothing here on this call constitutes investment advice nor forward guidance in any form. Ted, welcome to our call. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Jay. Really appreciate it. Fantastic. Yeah, as we, you know, as we're looking at your stock this morning, it's hitting fresh uh, multi-year highs. I think it just hit, you know, lucky number 13 and it's bouncing around there a little bit. Um, you know, clearly a uh, indication that the markets are strong, that the results are coming in good. Uh, let, let's start off kind of big picture first. Let's talk about the uh, LPG markets and the DLGC sector and uh, talk about what some of the strengths we're seeing there. Um, what, what, what's fueling this big rate rise? You know, look, fundamentally, um, U.S. production levels, um, you know, and by consequence, export level, we'll get into that in a second, have been really good. Um, you know, the, the major midstream guys have made investments in pipelines and export capacity, uh, and the upstream guys have been, you know, continuing to produce product that can be fractionated. Um, and the U.S. recently overtook the Middle East as a block. The U.S. has been the largest single LPG exporting nation for a couple of years now, but we actually just overtook the entire Middle East. Um, and so, you know, that speaks volumes about the importance of this market. And one of the key things is compared to the, the Saudi market, which historically been the main event, uh, I should say the Middle Eastern market, but set by the Saudi acceptance price, the Saudi contract price. You know, the U.S. market is obviously transparent. You know, you can look at it on Bloomberg and figure out what prices are. But um, U.S. LPG continues to be priced at, a, at, a, at, a, at attractive levels um, in, in, in the two key metrics that we look at. One is it's cheap to the Far East index price in Asia, which means that, you know, the landed price there, less freight, less the cost to, uh, to, to acquire this stuff here in the U.S., including whatever terminal fees, uh, still leaves you with the tidy profit as an arbitrageur. And then, uh, to my mind, what's really been uh, quite a, quite helpful for us is um, the increase uh, or the increased demand from the pet chem sector. Um, you know, uh, there's always a trade-off between NAPTA and LPG, and that NAPTA LPG ratio has been um, in favor of LPG for uh, really, I think, for all of this year, if not most of this year. Um, and that sets up when that when that happens, that sub- sets up really well. We didn't have a huge number of deliveries into the fleet this year. Um, and, uh, you know, even next year, we kind of know what we're getting and we know that there's more growth coming. So um, that all sets up for a, a, a well-balanced fleet and, um, you know, pretty healthy rates like you're seeing. Yeah, we're, we're definitely seeing the rates remain strong. And, you, you know, when these rates started moving back in April or May, uh, you know, a lot of people naturally were skeptical and they said, you know, I don't think these rates will stay. We've seen some little, you know, one up and downs before. Uh, but this time it was a little different as we looked at the arbitrage curves. And I, I know you were mentioning that in your answer there. You know, you're looking at the cheap um, U.S. export capacity. It's finally coming online right after years of infrastructure development. And we were looking at the Middle East, you know, landed prices in Japan. And you could price these things out for about a year and a half on the forward futures curve. And it just looked like that arbitrage was wide open all the way through, you know, mid to late 2020 at that time. So it seemed like, you know, if, as long as the ships remained in balance, uh, that rates would stay high. Um, we've seen that, right? It's panned out. It's been true. It's been, what, seven months now of great rates. Um, mm-hmm. Do you still see, when you guys are looking at it, when you're looking at that arbitrage curve, is that still what you see? Or do you see any sort of uh, signs of concern or risk in, in the future here? 
No, we don't. We really don't see any any signs of concern or risk. I mean, we're um, uh, we continue to be pretty happy with everything we're seeing as we're looking out. Um, you know, on the freight side, uh, it's buried in our 10Q, but um, you know, we took some FFA exposure um, and had you know a nice little favorable mark to market on that since we bought it. Um, you know, and that and that just you know, and that's out through the end of 2020. So um, from that perspective, you know, uh, on a on a well on a traded market, you know. Um, I guess other people see it the same way we do, and um, generally speaking, out looking, you know, longer term at commodity prices, it, you know, like you said earlier, it continues to set up well. I mean, um, you're always worried about storm clouds, but um, right now, it's, um, you know, looks uh, the horizon looks pretty clear. Yeah, you know, it's a, it's the first time in, in many shipping sectors where we're starting to see that. I mean, we're, we're starting to see a little bit of that in the crude tanker sector as well. Uh, but I mean, LPG is clearly leading the race. And, you know, it hasn't been capturing the same levels of high uh, of headlines. Uh, you know, obviously with Dorian LPG now, we're, it's pretty much doubled since, uh, since Q1 2019. But, you know, I don't think a lot of people have really been tracking the story outside of like a, a selective group of investors. Um, as we mentioned, uh, the, the, you know, pivotal part here is the U.S. exports. Uh, that's really driving that new supply. It's, it's almost doubling the, the ton mileage over to Asia. Um, what sort of projects are you most interested in in the United States? Have you been, you know, watching what, what Enterprise is doing, what Target is doing, and so forth? What what projects stick out to you as being the most important there? Yeah, I mean, I think you're, you're right. Those are absolutely the, the, the main ones because they do drive a lot of volume. You know, um, de-bottlenecking, um, you know, that we're seeing on some of the Enterprise stuff. Um, additional fractionation capacity uh, coming on. That's, you know, we continue to keep an eye on that. We've got a pretty good um, uh, overview of that in our investor deck. Um, and uh, so, so you, you know, you can see that um, all these things continue to come together. I think the other, the other piece that, we're, that we're, we find pretty interesting here in, um, in the U.S. Is, is probably a bit um, counterintuitive, but, um, you know, all these ethane-based crackers that are going to be coming online, that some have come online now will be coming on through 2020, will further decrease demand from the U.S. petrochemical sector. So I can't say we've quantified it all that well about how that's going to pan out, but, you know, that's pretty exciting too. So um, we see all those additional investments in capacity, um, you know, uh, getting filled up, not immediately, but um, we do see additional, you know, uh, pushes to demand. And we, we feel like given the investments in, um, you know, the Target Enterprise put out there that, that um, ETE is doing up in, uh, in Marcus Hook. Um, they'll get their permitting stuff sorted out with the with the state, and you know, and, and, and crank up the uh, the exports there. Um, you know, things. Um, you know, is, is generally that that all looks good. And again, I think um, the combination of decreased uh, demand uh, we expect out of the Gulf and the increased export capacity investments that we've touched on, uh, and the fractionation capacity, uh, as well as what we expect to see out of Marcus Hook, all sets up really well. Yeah, you know, it seems like it does. And, you know, we're sitting here, you know, 100% profits if you were in since Q119 and, uh, you know, about 80% profits since we put out our, our main article on Seeking Alpha there. So, you know, we're sitting here kind of fat, dumb and happy and we're getting these big rates and we're looking at the arbitrage curve and, and everything looks great. And I mean, it really does. Uh, you know, even even my macro guys looking at this and being like, wow, I just it's hard to see negatives in this picture. But, you know, as investors, we do need to, you know, pay attention to any sort of storm clouds or potential black swans that could develop. I mean, the obvious one would be like a global slowdown, right? But beyond, the, you know, yeah. the obvious huge global slowdown, what are, what are some of the things that you look out for? Like the things that would concern you, uh, potential black swans, or as you mentioned, storm clouds, what, what do you, what kind of stuff do you see? Um, 
you know, look, I'd say, you know, the things, the, the one thing that makes the LPG trade pretty idiosyncratic, um, aside from its general opacity, which for those of you guys, um, you know, who, who read the RBN stuff, there was actually a nice uh, RBN piece about um, LPG trading. But, um, you know, we exist when things are good, all the commodity prices are in the right relative positions. Um, so if there's any sort of change that, you know, oil gets oil gets so cheap that NAFTA becomes cheaper relative to, to LPG and because LPG doesn't follow the price down for some reason, or there's some exogenous shock in the natural gas chain, um, you know, which again, I don't really see given all the investments going on there. Um, you know, those are, those are the, um, you know, those are the ones that I worry about. I mean, look, everybody hates new buildings. Um, but on the other hand, you know, we've, you get good visibility as an investor. And, and, you know, I certainly, um, as you pointed out the outset of your call, we're not here to give investment advice, but, you know, as an investor, if you don't like the sector, you can sell the stock. It's a lot harder for us to sell the assets. And so, um, you know, you've got, you got plenty of lead time. Um, you know, if you, if you see something you don't like, and right now, you know, we haven't seen overordering. We're going to keep a close eye on it. Um, the commodity, there's, there's no reason to believe the commodity price deck is going to change, um, you know, right now. So that feels pretty good. Um, you know, it's kind of hard to rack your brain and say, you know, certainly an Elizabeth Warren presidency, uh, would be a risk for everybody in the hydrocarbons business. So I won't, you know, that, that's, that sort of is not unique to LPG, but, um, you know, one of the biggest, um, and, you know, and you, you, you touched on risk factors, but I, I guess maybe getting into risk mitigants a little bit. Look, one of the things you got to be mindful of um, in any upcycle in shipping is there's going to be a down cycle. And granted, we don't see it now, but we know it's going to come. And so, you know, setting yourself up with the right cost structure, including capital cost, is pretty important to that. And we, you know, we, we've been, we think, pretty good at that. And we're going to continue to make sure we're good at that. Yeah, thanks, Ted. That makes sense. And, you know, that's a really good segue to start talking a little bit more Dorian specific and, and talk about how you've set yourself up. So you mentioned, you know, a conservative capital posture, at least you kind of inferred that uh, your leverage is coming down rapidly uh, with the cash flows coming in. And, you know, we had you here about a quarter ago, right, to discuss the results and uh, to discuss your capital allocation. Um, has your leverage targets, have they changed at all? I mean, right now you're you're getting into the 40 percent debt to assets. Is that is that correct? And, and what, are, what are your targets for that leverage? Yeah, it's, you know, we, um, it's a great question. Um, you know, the, 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 the tricky thing about, about uh, loan to values is um, they're really great when the asset values are increasing more rapidly than you're paying down debt, which is kind of what you're seeing in the numbers that you just cited, Jay. Um, you know, our debt to total cap is at a very kind of comfortable level now. I, I think net debt to total cap is, you know, somewhere sub 40%. Um, but what we really drive the business to is, is cash cost per day because that's what defines you. Uh, through the through the through the cycle, so we're pretty happy where we are right now. Uh, Twenty three thousand a day. You know, if we could bring that down a little bit, you know, we'd be happy. Um, as I touched on in the earnings call, we 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 have a our scrubber investment program going on right now, so that's going to add about six thousand dollars a day between uh, you know the the beginning of uh, you know the the quarter we're in, so October one through to March thirty one, the end of our fiscal year. Um, but you know, putting that aside, you know, twenty three thousand is a pretty decent number. I mean, you know, shoot, if we could save, you know, shave a thousand dollars off that, we'd be happy. We'd be happy to do it. Um, and right now, in the low interest rate environment, that obviously, if you can fix interest rates, which we've done, um, you know, that does allow you to um, that does allow you to keep that kind of low. Um, well, just manage that cash cost per day more effectively, and obviously, it implies 
potentially somewhat higher leverage rates. So um, we, we certainly won't shy away from taking on some additional leverage if we if we think it fits into our long term cash cost per day model. But um, you know we're not we're not on the lookout for it. Obviously, we got um, we're starting to have the, the nice problem of of what to do with all this cash. Um, and uh, you know, but uh, but nonetheless. Um, we want to be responsible stewards of this capital as, uh, you know, as, as the markets, you know, the business is generating these nice returns. Yeah, it definitely makes sense, Ted. And, and yeah, when we include the working capital, when we include your cash balances, uh, yeah, your net debt to assets comes down even into the 30%. So it's a very, yeah. uh, very stable balance sheet, uh, lots of liquidity, big cash piling up. Uh, last time we chatted, I, I believe you said that, you know, it would be nice to build up a little bit of a cash reserve. I believe you said, you know, obviously not precise guidance. We're just kind of, you know, making benchmarks. But I think you said somewhere around 70 or 80 million was kind of the cash balance you'd like to see. Does that still hold true or, or are you looking for a bigger war chest now? Um, I wouldn't describe it as a war chest. So, um, you know, as, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a long-term buffer, 70, 80 feels kind of good, you know. And, and um, so, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't change kind of my, my, you know, my gut on that. I, that, that feels pretty good. Um, you know, if our, if our board were more minded to have us return more cash, you know, we, obviously we take our instructions from the board, but, um, you know, if they, if they said, gee, we think, you know, we, we've looked at the numbers with you and we think you're being too risk averse, it ought to be 60 uh, or something. Well, okay, fine. We'll, we'll listen. But, um, you know, having those extra cash balances is useful just for the longer term, you know, sort of the, the Jamie Dimon Fortress balance sheet thing. Um, but, you know, in terms of, um, you know, in terms of war chest, um, there's not a whole lot to buy right now. So we're not, um, you know, that's not a, not a major focus. Um, if, 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 you know, if, if it is, we could probably finance it, um, you know, on an as needed basis. So, um, you know, I think we try not to just sit on cash for the sake of sitting on cash or, or certainly don't, will not buy something for the sake of buying something if money's going to burn a hole in our pocket. Um, you know, we want to be very thoughtful about what we do here. Yeah, that makes sense, Ted. And that and that's a, another good segue to to talk about capital allocation priorities. So I, I heard you mention that, yes, we have a lot of cash. Uh, we got that 70, 80 million. We don't necessarily want to go out and buy ships in this market. We're happy with the fleet we got. Um, and, and I asked you the 70, 80 million question because I, I'm sure most of the listeners on the line understand, you know, we're there, right? I mean, Dorian has that level of cash now. <laughs> and, right? and we might even we might even be higher because we're going off cash that was reported from 30 September. Right. So, so we're there. So that would mean, you know, if we're taking this logically to the next step forward, that all the cash that you're generating has to go somewhere, right? Because we have our, we have our cash buffer. And so now let's talk about those priorities. You mentioned, you know, fleet acquisitions, maybe not one of them. Um, how do dividends, uh, stock buybacks, um, any other strategic uh, initiatives, any sort of refinancing, how do those things uh, line up for you? Uh, great question, Jay. Boy, that's a lot to that's a, that's a lot there to chew on. So I guess um, just to take it in, I guess the order you you posed them. So we do have a, a couple points. First of all, um, you made you, on the call we did mention that um, as of October 29th, we had 96 million of restricted and unrestricted cash. So we had about 35, 36 restricted cash. So we had about 60 in the bank as of a few days ago. So that's that's uh, you know that that's. Uh, your your intuition's correct that we've you know grown the cash pile since 9:30. You know we obviously do have the stock buyback on. We we only bought about uh, just shy of seven million shares back through um, you know through what we announced yesterday. Um, you know we'll we'll continue to keep an eye on on, on those opportunities. Um, you know I think there's some logic in in continuing in continuing to look at stock buybacks. I mean you know one we have a lot more authorization to go through. 
Um, and obviously, you know, without being specific on what our NAV per share is, I don't think it's a stretch to say that um, the company's still trading at a discount to its NAV. So that economic proposition makes sense. And as you know, we've kind of thought about it here. Stock buyback gives, um, you know, the investor who kind of wants to take some chips off the table that opportunity, uh, and the guy who likes the story to, you know, implicitly increase his exposure. So, um, you know, we kind of like that. Um, you know, we think that's a, that's a good a good way. Uh, and also, now that C-Core's uh, out of the stock, you've probably seen an increase in daily volumes. Um, so that sort of increases, you know, obviously, A, the overall liquidity and ability for people to buy and sell the, the stock, which had been, you know, it's gotten progressively better. But, uh, you know, with 9 million shares now, or well, in total, 5.2 most recently, kind of out and available in the market, um, it certainly helps liquidity. Um, you know, dividends are always a possibility. Um, I think we think about them more as opportunities to return capital to shareholders as opposed to getting into what we believe to be kind of the tricky treadmill of trying to say, oh, we're going to have a formula tied to dividends or we're going to you know, pay out this much per quarter, this much per, per half year, because frankly, we don't think investors um, give you that much credit for it, but they obviously like the dividends when you get them. And so, um, you know, I think we'd view it um, we sure like to get credit for it in our stock price, but I suppose I suspect that it's more likely that investors will look to it and will be happy when they see it, and maybe reward you in the short term. But um, you know, maybe not necessarily unless you can really prove you got some reason to continue to have a long-term payout. So dividends are certainly something we'll consider, but I think with those caveats, from a from a debt capital structure perspective, we've got um, we've got you know our first maturity is um, balloon maturities in March of 2022. Um, so we do have time, but that said, um, you know, you tend to want to make hay while the sun shines and sometimes shipping uh, banks or at least their credit departments have so much short memories. You know, we do think that that it may be, you know, something that we should look at pretty hard uh, in terms of evaluating opportunities to, to um, you know, redo our debt. I think we're happy with the quantum, but um, I'd like to I'd like to loosen up uh, a few of the covenants, which probably to the outside aren't, aren't that big a deal and they probably aren't. But. Uh, I think we can do better if I compare ourselves to some of our European peers. So, um, you know, that's that's what I expect you to see. Hopefully tighten the pricing and improve the terms on the on the debt. But, you know, the overall picture, you know, with higher cash and hopefully the opportunity to to to, to improve on the debt, um, you know, does set up pretty well for, you know, a lot a lot more cash to, to, to be generated in the course that creates that nice problem of how to distribute it. The one, the one footnote Jay had put on your on your your comment about yeah we've you know we've kind of reached the cash buffer zone. Um, let's not forget that we we still do have you know commitments under our scrubber program, um, you know which are not inconsequential twenty five million dollars to the end of the year. So while a lot of times um, the investment community is happy to see us um, spend it on the expectation we're going to get it, and in spite of the fact that we're we're pretty optimistic about our about uh, uh, about the rate outlook and certainly the short term rate outlook. Um, you know, we tend to be old, uh, old fashioned and, uh, you know, we like to pay our, our, our bills out of uh, cash when they're coming due, and not, not expect, um, everything to work out. So you may see us being a bit more prudent in terms of, you know, agreeing with you on, uh, on the, you know, we've got plenty of cash to go because we do have some near-term commitments, clearly. Yeah, thanks, Ted. I, mean, I know that was a, the lengthy question with a, a lot of little things to focus on, right? We, we had a discussion there about, you know, repurchases, dividends, uh, how to look at the debt, uh, some of the scrubber obligations coming up. Um, you know, of course, even including that uh, $25 million for the scrubbers, uh, you know, we're still uh, really fat on cash at this point. Point taking a look at everything, Ted, it's, it's a good, uh, you know, luxury problem to have to say, hey, what do we do with all this cash? Uh, you, you know, I 
I'm getting, you know, I have live investors on the line and, and myself as well looking at these uh, repurchases and we're saying, you know, look, everything that Ted's saying about repurchases is spot on. It makes excellent sense um, at 10, 11, 12, even $12. Uh, you're trading at a fraction of an AV. Um, you know, if you if you if you ignore some of those broker reports that, you know, quite frankly, some of these brokers have not updated their VLGC valuations in a year, which is just incredible. Yeah. I mean, the market is surging. Uh, you can even do time charters now at, at some of these high rates um, and the brokers haven't moved their valuations. So you, when you when you when you the brokers say your nav is like 14 bucks. Well, yeah, look, but those are using outdated valuations. If you if you move those vessel valuations up along a curve. Uh, like a service like Vessels Value does, um, you start getting much higher yet. So I, I guess the point I'm making is that even $13, it, it looks pretty attractive for your shares. So kind of circling this all together, um, we only saw, you know, 600,000 shares repurchased last quarter, um, even, you know, in the tens. Was that a, you know, just uber conservatism? Was there some sort of debt covenant that was restricting you? Um, it, why was the, why was the repurchase so small? And I mean, it, it was, a, it was a good amount of money, but considering how much cash you're bringing in, frankly, Ted, it was kind of small is, is, was there a reason for that? A uh, couple things uh, on that. So, you know, if you look at where we ended, uh, not this past quarter, the quarter before, um, we wanted to build up that cash buffer. So I think we ended the, the June 30 quarter with 20 something million of free cash, 26 million, if I remember it right. Um, you know, and, and then, and then we, so, so we did, and by the time we announced earnings, obviously, um, you know, the cash had increased pretty nicely. Um, so, you know, those purchases were more weighted. Um, well, they, they obviously didn't happen until after we announced the earnings. Um, but if you think about it, we announced earnings August 4th, um, you know, and, and, uh, you know, we really had two months of, of stock buyback activity. So I wouldn't read a ton into it. Yeah. I mean, there's probably a little bit of conservatism to go with it because we kept on, you know, the weird thing is, as a management team, right? You know, you're bitching and moaning when your stock's at six because you know it's cheap, um, you know, and at that point, we, we, we weren't able to buy back stock. And then all of a sudden, you see it at 10 and 12, and you're like, oh, my gosh, but we know it's still cheap. So, um, you know, we, we finally got off our, uh, off our butts and started buying more stock. The other thing is we were kind of trying to buy chunkier blocks when they became available, um, and, you know, there's obviously been one huge seller of the stock based in Singapore. Um, and so we've been trying to sort of, you know, pick up those blocks when they come and they didn't come as frequently as we wanted. So we sort of just, you know, reverted to, you know, buying what we could at basis 10 B18 levels, uh, in the market through, through a couple of brokers. So, um, I think, you know, again, to, 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 to try to answer your question directly, one was timely just to make sure we had a little more cash in the till before we started buying. Um, and, and two, and two really was, um, hoping to get more blocks and and not and not having that pan out, so revert, reverting to more regular purchases of, of of smaller volumes of shares. Yeah. Okay. Uh, thanks, Ted. I, I appreciate that. And you know, I don't want to get uh, you know, we're not we're not talking official guidance or anything here, just um, you know, speculative or, or possibilities or whatever. But you know, is it is it potentially possible to you know get on the phone and and make a long distance call over there to Singapore and you know, do some sort of big block. It sounds so easy in theory, but look, I mean, if they're trying to get out of the stock and, you know, if they get out of the stock in volume, it's going to push it down. If you guys want to buy back into the stock in volume, it, it's going to pop it up, right? So maybe there's some sort of way to, to do a deal. I mean, $13 is a, is a nice round number. Um, is that something that could happen? I know, again, not guidance, anything like that. Is is that something that could be done? Yeah, in theory, I suppose it could be. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's, 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 it's clearly something that, um, you know, uh, 
is is within the realm of possibility. I think you know on the other hand you have a very savvy seller, um, you know who also um, has a relatively high basis. Um, you know they bought ten uh, percent of Dorian, which was a, a higher share count back then. So don't hold me to the numbers, but um, I want to say it was something on the order of say I think it was about six million shares. Um, they bought at like fifteen forty two. And the last slug they bought was at 750. So um, they sold through the 750. I mean, depending on how you allocate the cost, but they've, they've sold through the 750 slug. Um, so they're now having to offset some of those profits um, with, you know, book losses in these in these uh, in the shares they purchased later at the higher price. So you've got a sophisticated seller there who, you know, look, I think it's a function of what he has, what, what other capital priorities he has. Um, you know, I know he's out in the market now with with Hafnia. Um, you know, so, so, uh, depending on what else he does, I would suspect that would dictate his appetite to not dollar cost average out. Um, you know, uh, he's a, again, savvy investor, he probably, you know, uh, dollar cost average out the sort of the way he dollar cost averaged in. So, um, can't, can't, uh, obviously tell you exactly what he's thinking, but, uh, cause, cause I don't have that dialogue, but, um, but nonetheless, um, it would make. A tremendous amount of transactional sense, you know, to if, if you know if we wanted to have that dialogue. Yeah, thanks, Ted. Yeah, it just seems like a you know a phone call worth worth taking and, and a potential win win for everybody, right? It would be an easy transaction, and you guys have easily yep. have the cash to uh, to relieve that seller of a couple million shares, and it would not affect <laughs> it would not affect trading liquidity at all. Um, just a win win for everybody. Um, just a real quick uh, fine point there on the earlier question: Is there any sort of covenant? Uh, restriction on repurchases that perhaps we're not seeing. We're fully green, fully greenlighted. That expired in May of uh, May thirty first, twenty nineteen. Excellent. Yeah, I knew there was some legacy stuff. I, I didn't know if uh, perhaps there was something with trailing earnings or, or something weird there. All right, excellent. That's that's good news there. Um, let's talk a little bit about uh, the scrubber program and some granular stuff there. I I know you had originally, I believe it was uh, it was like four scrubbers for Q three and then six scrubbers for Q four. And I noticed on your call, uh, Q fours came down to five. And we had a little bit of delays right in Q3. And then it looks like you had three scrubbers that got moved into Q120. Can we just talk about that real quick? I understand there's some sort of issues with the Chinese yard. Yeah. So, um, so we, we, we put on, we put two scrubbers on during the, during the quarter just ended. So of the, of the 10 that we were going to install that left, that, that brought us down to eight. Um, you know, the, 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 the current schedule, you know, there's always a little bit of shifting based on, especially at these rates. Um, you know, if we've got an opportunity to trade the ship, we're constantly kind of juggling ships and slots. And, you know, you know, there's been obviously a lot of reports about congestion or slowdowns at the yards. So, you know, even your planned date can slip a day or two. Um, so, I, you know, I, I think we, we always knew there was some possibility that some of these ships would slip around. But the, the biggest development was um, we the, the yard that we were going to install uh, three scrubbers at. Uh, in China, got into I think a tax dispute or something. But anyway, some some dispute with the local municipality, and the local municipality shut them down. So you know, at first, you know, you're 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 really irritated because that's all part of your planning. But frankly, um, given the rates uh, that we're enjoying now, the opportunity cost would have been brutal. And you know, we said, look, let's we'll, we'll, you know, we'll, we had to find another yard anyway. No reason to rush. Um, we'll still do it early. You know, still do it early enough in the quarter that we can. Um, you know, enjoy the benefits of, of IMO 2020. But look, historically, the winter markets, you know, there's been a bit of a pullback. Um, we may not see that this year, given all the strength. But if there is, 
um, you know, then, then we've reduced the opportunity cost. And if there isn't, well, we're going to do it anyway. So, um, you know, it, it, I'd say it's, you know, it was a, it was a disruption that we didn't really want, but frankly, I think, you know, we tried to make, uh, try to make a little bit of extra profit out of it. Yeah, thanks for explaining that, Ted. It was just interesting to see the the time frame scoot back a little bit, and of course for your own reporting, uh, right? That'll still be in your in your uh, 2020 report, right? Because that goes through Q1, is the end of the year. Um, but as far right. as for IMO 2020, uh, you'll have those three those three shifts that are a little bit delayed on that. Uh, what sort of spreads have you been seeing uh, so far between that compliant fuel for you guys and, and for the uh, regular? Yeah, it's well, um, you know, we we as probably others do, we track it and we track it in all the different markets. You know, it's probably 225, 250 a metric ton. Um, you know, which is which is great because that that spells great opportunity uh, for for the payback on these scrubbers. Um, you know, that said, um, it, you know, as, as everyone's quick to point out, there's no there's there's literally no demand for very low sulfur fuel oil yet. So the you know the the price discovery there is going to take a little bit more uh, to pan out. But you know, you can definitely see scenarios where. The first quarter could have much larger spreads as people kind of have to figure this out. Um, refineries have to figure out. I mean, they look. Refineries have generally figured out what they're going to do. But look, it's not it's not an operational layup. And I'm not a, a, a petroleum engineer, but it's not an operational layup to change your feedstock slate and change your output. Um, you know, and just and just you know do it without without losing sleep. I mean, I suspect that there'll be some issues um, among the shipping community. There is very there's a lot of concern about blends, which is you know, taking 15% of the current MGO and 85% of the current HSFO to, to meet the regs, people are concerned about how the engines are going to react to that. So, um, you know, you may see guys who refuse to take a blend. They'll only take stuff that's actually been refined as, as, the, as the new um, compliant fuel. So there, there's a lot of wild cards in there, um, many of which could, could point to some near-term larger spreads. But um, you know, my guess is probably uh, no better than anybody. It's certainly no better than anybody else's. Yeah, thanks for that, Ted. Just just to put that in dollar amounts, you know, for investors or those, you know, we need to sharpen our models a little bit. So, in that two hundred, say two hundred fifty dollars spread, uh, what kind of cost savings is that uh, per day for you guys for your your scrubber equipped vessels? And then also, uh, I know the rest of your fleet, uh, pretty much the entire fleet except for your three legacy vessels, are modern eco builds from Korea, right? So, what kind of yeah. savings are you going to see on those vessels as well with with the current fuel price? So I guess two questions. One would be what are the scrubber savings, and then two, what would be the eco saving? Um, yeah, since we're well, we're we're, we're only going to put scrubbers on our on our eco ships, um, just because you get you technically get a faster return on the on the older uh, on the older ships because they're less fuel efficient. But um, on the other hand, you get no benefit or very limited benefit from a residual value perspective. So we're kind of putting them on our new ships. But um, to put it in context, our ships burn you know uh, on 250 sailing days a year. Somewhere between you know thirteen and fifteen thousand uh, metric tons of fuel. So if you go with fourteen thousand metric tons of fuel times two hundred and fifty sailing days, three and a half million metric tons. Um, we'll keep the math simple at two hundred dollars a metric ton. Um, you know that's that's uh, seven hundred million of savings. Which I did some math wrong. Hang on a second. Any event, we but we'd expect to see. I'm just trying to prove the math myself. But generally, the, it generally works out to three to five thousand dollars a day. I'd say uh, is, is where I'd point you. So. Um, same Baltic for everybody, you know, our fuel efficiency and, and that, and being able to burn the higher price stuff, you know, works out to three to $5,000 a day. 
All right, excellent. Thanks for that, Ted. Yeah, you know, I, I had the luxury of sitting behind a computer and uh, busting out the calculator and running through the numbers as you were talking about them. Um, I came up with a slightly higher number uh, on that math, uh, taking the 14,000 okay. tons. If you take that 14,000 tons, you multiply it by 250, and, and then you divide it by 365 to kind of get like an annualized range. Um, I was landing close yep. to 10,000, which I was like, I don't even believe it. It seems too high. Uh, exactly. But it, actually, that's the way to do it. Uh, you know, the numbers that we're working with internally, um, actually, I guess I guess that's a, that's lower than two hundred dollars a metric ton. I think I think at one hundred and fifty dollars a ton, the numbers we were running internally are probably closer to. Now I got my calculator out. Um, yeah, you're right. Two hundred it does spin out to. I, I get I get something closer to eleven thousand dollars a day, but at two hundred it could be a big number. Yeah, that's 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 real good, Ted. And, and it's good to actually, you know, we're sitting here, we're, we're using our calculators, and we're like, look, I mean, the original forecast I think was about one fifty. So that makes sense that, you know, your yep. models internally would have been, hey, saying, you know, we're going to benefit five or six thousand a day. But look, I mean, we're seeing yep. these headlines that say uh, a thousand ships that were supposed to get scrubbers in Q4. They weren't able to make the docks. And look, I mean, you you, you were three of them, right, uh, for some weird right. permit right. issue. But there's also delays. Right. There's also uh, people making the economic decision that, look, rates are high. I'm not going to do scrubbers. So, you know, you, you have a thousand more people waiting in line for this compliant fuel. I mean, it's common sense, Economics 101, that the, the spreads are going to widen, right, bigger than people thought. Correct. They were. Um, so Correct. when you're sitting there with scrubbers, it's a benefit. But also, look, I mean, with your eco ships, uh, you're going to see the benefit there, too, because every time it, the price goes higher, we, we, you know, we don't like higher fuel prices. But when you're competing against another company and you're offering those eco ships, I mean, I just think it's a great position to be in. I, you know, you can see I own your stock already. I mean, <laughs> yeah, no, you're right. I mean, all else equal, we can take a lower freight price and generate, you know, a higher or at least the same TCE, right? There's a, there's a you know, that, that it makes you cost competitive or in an up market, um, you know, we're, we're generating more TCE per, per metric ton of fuel transported. So that's, that's big. Excellent. Thanks, Ted. Appreciate us uh, diving into the numbers there. One more question kind of on this vein. I, I think we're looking forward a little bit, maybe 2021 or, or maybe a little further. LPG retrofits, right? Uh, you know, fixing up that engine yep. so it can you know, be a dual fuel consumer. Um, have you done a lot of looking into that? And if so, uh, what's maybe a realistic timeline to start doing something like that? And then what would kind of the cost be to uh, retrofit those engines? So um, we've done a ton of work on it. Um, you know, we've, we've uh, you know, we've done some joint studies with ABS and with Hyundai. Um, you know, we think it, we think it's a it's a great opportunity. I think the challenge we have right now is the economics don't don't support um, a retrofit in our minds. I mean, right now, so BW is committed to four retrofits, which I think they're going to do during the first quarter of 2020, and I, we think they're going to be about eight million dollars a pop. And you know, it's not um, from a mechanical engineering perspective. Look, it's not um, rocket science, but on the other hand, it is major surgery to your ship. And at least from our perspective, A, we, w we don't want to be the first guy to retrofit. Um, and B, we're still kind of trying to figure out, well, would it be better? Or, or, are you not better off, you know, um, just building a ship de novo? Um, and if you look at, you know, where the, what the shipyards are quoting for a, a dual fuel ship, you know, they're only charging, a, I guess, four to six million. I guess it depends on a couple of things. But even at six million um, over a traditional ship, I mean, you're, you're you're ahead of the game versus retrofitting, um, you know, on a marginal cost basis, and you got a new ship with you know 25, 30 years of useful life. Um, so you know, 
we're, we're, we're continuing to, to watch those economics closely, you know, continue to watch how uh, the BW experience uh, evolves. But we think that is um, the next big thing for, for, for our business. Um, you know, I think as a, as a you know, our, our, as a management team, we're excited about it. Um, I think we, do, we absolutely believe um, that that's where our business needs to go. And I think the only question is making sure that um, the economics, uh, you know, support the, su- support the vision, if you will. Definitely makes sense, Ted. There's some moving parts, and it, the main thing is is knowing that you're plugged in, you understand the numbers, you understand the economics, and we'll see um, when things make sense. Uh, just to kind of circle back on that quick answer, um, you know, it's it's a quick answer, a complex question, but is this something that is more of maybe like a 2021 thing, and, and we're not really looking at spending money on as soon as next year, or do you think we might be spending money on it as soon as 2020? There's, there's certainly nothing in the, the capital plan for 2020. Um you know, uh, you know, and, and uh, again, like I said, since I'd like to, since I think we kind of like to see how these evolve, I think that'd be more like a, you know, a 2021 decision. Um, and it might, you know, and, and depending on which route we went, you know, if we went for a new building versus uh, versus a retrofit, um, you know, that would dictate the actual timing of the cash outflow. I don't foresee anything in, in calendar 2020, you know, at this point. All right, Ted. Well, sounds good. Well, you know, call the other companies and, uh, you know, convince them that we need to do some retrofits and, and not some new builds. I think that would be the uh, optimum. I agree. On that uh, we'll see that. Yeah, uh, agreed. I, agreed. I know it can get a little crazy. You know, thankfully I've seen that there's only a couple new builds that have LPG engines and the price tags have been you know, fairly high in the eighties. That's correct. Yeah. Sounds good, Ted. It sounds like something we need to circle back to maybe next summer and, and you know, have a, this would be an yep. interesting topic. I think we could have an entire conference call or maybe even a panel. Uh, we could even bring your friends from Singapore up on the line and we could, you know, we could just <laughs> chat about LPG retrofits. I think, I think that could be a useful call. Uh, just a couple more granular things I want to clean up for, for Dorian here coming off your results. Um, we saw the utilization numbers. Is that utilization uh, including, it was in the low 90s, does that include the scrubber off hire or is that just available days being utilized there? That's just available days. So it, it, so available days are calendar days minus planned, planned maintenance, which includes, you know, installation and dry docking. So really what you saw was, um, I, I think, um, you know, our, our, your chartering guys um, are doing a constant balance in a, and look, in a, in a crummy market, they're striving for 100% utilization. Um, in, a, in a better market, they're trying to be a bit more selective. Um, and so trying to get that right mix between rate and utilization. So they're striving for the highest utilization adjusted rate. And so I think what you, you probably saw in that lower utilization was, you know, um, them trying to um, work the market a little bit. Okay, makes sense, Ted. Uh, so looking into Q4 and also Q120, um, it looks like in our Q4 with the scrubbers, we're, we're going to be shooting for, you know, 80, 85% utilization maybe, and then probably the Q1 2020, maybe around 90%. Does that, does that sound about right? Or are there some other issues there? Um, you know, look, we don't, we don't give guidance on that. Um, so hard for me to answer, but I, I, I'd say that, you know, generally speaking, you know, we're, we're, we, we, we probably do a little bit better than the industry. And um, I'd expect that the industry will do somewhere in that, in those zip codes, maybe a bit better. So. Um, but, uh, you know, I'd say from a broad industry perspective, you're probably not terribly far off um, at all, Jay. All right. Thanks, Ted. Try not to be terribly far off as an investor. So usually, <laughs> usually a good strategy. Um, one more thing, just cleaning up your charters a little bit. So last time we talked, I believe we, we kind of mentioned, I know you don't give individual guidance on ships, but you mentioned that around 30,000 TCU means sense for those, for those charters. And of course, we can kind of back that out from your filings as well. Um, going forward... Yep. 
um, you, you have several ships that are set to expire in Q419. Well, you know, look, we're in Q419. So where are those expirations? Are there any sort of options for those charters to keep extending them? Or are those going to come back spot the, for those four in, in Q4? There, there's some dialogue uh, on some of them around extending. And, you know, one or two will probably get redelivered. So, uh, you know, mix, I guess, is the short answer. Yeah, when, when you say a dialogue, it is that's not in terms of they have another option to keep running at thirty, right? That would be no, some sort of no, we, no. It's 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 a it's a it's a de novo negotiation. Excellent, sounds good, Ted. And uh, just to just to get the fine point there is, are those pretty much it, when we're modeling this and, and you know sharpening our pencils? Is that pretty much you know through the end of Q four we should kind of still assume those same charter rates, or is that going to lift here maybe in the next couple of weeks? You can probably assume varies a little bit, but probably if you assumed on average. Half the quarter at those rates is probably a decent decent way to model it. I definitely makes sense, Ted. I think we've cleaned up uh, a lot of good questions on on Dorian, gotten into some of the finer points. We definitely hit capital allocation really hard there, and we, we talked about the overall industry. Uh, I know you've said that you know, hey, if we have any follow up questions, just to send them your way. Uh, that goes for anyone on the line who wasn't able to get to our live chat and, and type those questions in. Uh, we had a good participation day. We had about 32 people, it looks like, on the line today. So, Great. Ted, thanks for joining thanks us. I appreciate you, taking our, appreciate you taking our questions. No, th Jay, thanks for organizing. Thanks for um, all, the, all the guys and the investors that you, who dialed in as well. Really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to another episode of Valley Investors Edge Live. We hosted Ted Young, CFO of Dorian LPG. For disclosures, I'm currently long shares of Dorian LPG, and nothing said by Ted or myself constitutes any sort of official company guidance. This is not meant to be investment recommendations in any format. This recording took place on the morning of November 1st, 2019. Feel free to join our research platform and take place in future discussions. To read my research, please navigate to seekingalpha.com and search for Jay Mintzmeyer. To access our premium content, you can navigate direct to mintzmeyer.com. That's M-I-N-T-Z-M-Y-E-R.com to sign up for a free trial.